was a spiritually forming thing for these interns to go through. Some people came in probably with more res- more NPD resources, and who knows how they felt about the fact that they were going to share. I mean, someone knows, but <laughs> some of them may not have felt that great about it. Um, and so it really is a spiritual practice for them to be together, to be committed to one another on this level, and to put that commitment into practice and saying, I'm willing to bind up my flourishing in yours and we'll succeed together or we won't. Welcome to Listener, a crew podcast. I'm your host, Sam Holland. Today's episode features TJ Poon, Epic's PNC director. If there's someone you'd like to hear interviewed or a topic you'd like to hear about on Listener, email me at samantha.holland at crew.org. Enjoy the show. So I grew up in a small Texas town. Um, yeah, not not a hotbed of racial diversity. And so I went to Rice in Houston, which was far more diverse. And I joined the crew there almost immediately. I had never heard of crew, but I showed up on campus and there was a sign advertising morning prayer. And I thought, well, I need prayer. So I, I was a believer. I went to the prayer meeting. It ended up being a crew event. And then just developing relationships. The crew there was, um, I'd say, over 50% Asian American. Uh, it was, yeah, there, there were more Asian Americans. Um, and that was new for me growing up in a small Texas town. And so it really changed my experience, probably changed the trajectory of my life just to be involved in a a movement like that and to have friends that were um, not from the same background that I was. And so when I, my senior year, we did a vision trip to East Asia. And that was when I got my passport for the first time. Uh, I I got my passport for that trip. I went and I was walking around East Asia thinking, this feels so normal and this should not feel normal to me. <laughs> so I just was moved by the Lord and remembered praying like, God, I pray that I can come back and maybe that I can bring people with me. So the following year I interned at Rice and I did end up recruiting three of my friends to go to East Asia on stint with me the following year. So we went on stint, and yeah, that was just a great experience for me, even though, you know, it was difficult. There were things about it. I showed up not knowing any Chinese, um, so getting around. I, I learned pretty quickly because I like to eat, <laughs> and I like to go places. So those were the Chinese words that I learned very quickly, how to get in cab and how to get food. So it seems that God really started preparing you early on, TJ, for what he was going to do in your life and even for the role that you're in now with crew. Yes. I did not see that back then. In fact, even though crew at Rice was you know, more diverse than the experience that I had had growing up, and most of my friends were not white. I mean, that's the reality. Most of my, my roommate for four years uh, was Indian. And so she and I joined the South Asian Society together, which was really fun for me. I loved being a part of it. And even though most of my friends were not white, I still did not really understand uh, the differences or the significance growing up 
in, you know, my small Texas town. I think what I internalized about not being racist was, well, we just don't, we don't see difference. You know, we need to be colorblind. Like that's the antidote to racism. And so even when my friends would tell me stories, I, I don't, I didn't really see the significance of them. And I, I really regret that. You know, one of the things I always say is I wish I could go back to college as an adult because <laughs> there just were so many things that I felt like were wasted on me. And I know the Lord used that. But uh, when I got involved in Epic, which my whole staff life has been in Epic other than our, you know, my intern years, I joined staff and we were immediately with Epic. And the the farther I went, the more years I spent I saw my college relationships really differently and I actually went back to a couple of people and just apologized and said, I'm sorry, I didn't see you. Cause even though I knew that we were different, um, I didn't, I didn't understand the significance, the significance of those differences. I didn't value them, um, or really see my friends in their cultural context, which yeah, it's really sad for me. I'm sure it was sad and painful for them too, because I remember conversations where I was an idiot. So <laughs> uh, that was, you know, just very sad. Um, now being involved in Epic, yeah, it's again, totally changed my life. Um, very different person than when I started. And I remember joining Epic and I probably felt like I belonged immediately, which was a blessing and amazing, uh, partially because of my experience at Rice, where um, the environment that I was in, I was already um, not in the numerical majority, even though I still held the the power of a majority culture person. Uh, I was used to being in a place where I wasn't in the numerical majority. And so I joined Epic and I and I immediately pretty much felt at home. But I would say for probably superficial reasons, you know, I was thinking, I was reflecting on this earlier and I tell people this story a lot. Just when I first joined, I was, people would say things to me, like my Asian American friends would say, well, you're practically Asian American. And, and I really, I know that they were joking, but I think to a, a white person who is immature in their cultural identity, that actually wasn't that helpful for me because uh, I was like, oh, yeah. <laughs> Rather than now, if someone says that to me in jest, I'm very aware of how that's not true. And the in kind of, you know, looking at the cultural iceberg model of uh, the iceberg model of culture and how the things that are under the surface and the things that are really you know, shape who we are and our attitudes and our values, those things in me are very white and a very, you know, Southern culture. So it took me a while to see that. Um, at first when I joined, I thought, well, I like the food. <laughs> there are some of my stories that, like some of my, my the stories that I tell about my parents um, do resonate in an Asian American environment um, because of just some of the ways that my parents and family were. Um, but yeah, I think those things are, th- that's what I saw at the beginning, probably um, as an immature person. I just saw the ways that, oh, I'm similar. I resonate with this. And then as I matured, I started to see 
really how different I was because, um, yeah, because of the whiteness that I had internalized, um, the privilege that I carried. So I always tell people that I learned about being white through Epic. (laughs) TJ, what do you think your friends were trying to communicate to you by saying, oh, you're practically Asian American? You know, that's a good question. I think it's kind of just a joke and probably a way to communicate like acceptance and belonging, uh, which is very kind. <laughs> I, I feel grateful that I was accepted and that I have always felt like I belonged in Epic. And I'm also grateful that my view of that has matured and I know I still have, you know, far to go, um, which is why. Yeah, I'm still on a learning journey and really grateful that I'm surrounded by people who care for me and who, yeah, who support me and on this and are gracious to tolerate me, honestly, sometimes. So I feel like that that's been such a gift from the Lord to be with people like that. So you mentioned being growing up, being colorblind and that really resonates with me. I also grew up in a very white part of the country in a very white town. And there were a few people of color, for instance, at my high school and I was friends with them. And I was very, I think I was very proud of my colorblindness because that's what I was taught was the right thing. The right attitude was to just, um, act like, there are no differences between us. There are no different stories. We are all experiencing the same reality. It's all good as long as we don't acknowledge anything else. And it wasn't until Crew 15 that I actually had a conversation with a staff colleague who is a person of color where I was really having an awakening during Crew 15 as to um, racialization and um, race, racist attitudes with, even within crew Mm -hmm. and hearing all this for the first time. And then, um, doing a lot of soul searching about my own upbringing and, and being colorblind and being taught to be colorblind. And I brought it up with this friend and, and I said, you know, I'm sorry. I, I have treated you like with my colorblind attitudes. I've never addressed Mm -hmm. that you are a person of color that that's a significant part of you and your story. And and she confirmed, yes, that is a su- significant part of who I am. And I want that to be a part of our relationship, that you would know that right. part of me and that part of my story. And I feel like I'm mm-hmm. still um, learning why that is significant. And I wondered if you could speak to that. As someone who's white, why is that so hard for us to grasp? (laughs) Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I think partly is because of the oppressive nature of whiteness and the, the privilege that we carry. I think it's hard for us to acknowledge that simply, um, by virtue of how we look, that we, that we interact with the world in a certain way, that we walk differently in the world than our friends of color do. Um, I think that's hard to, I think that's hard to accept at first 
you know, um, and I think particularly white men don't necessarily have experiences that confirm that for them. They can kind of just walk through life and, and kind of take it at face value that what's happening to them is, is everyone's experience. And, you know, I think that's easy for white women to do as well. Um, so I, that part, like for me, it, it took suspending, well, this is my experience. I mean, it, it doesn't seem that, um, what's the, like earth shattering to think, oh, other people have different experiences <clears throat> and my experience is not universal. Like there's this great line in the unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt where someone says, your experiences are not universal. And yeah, just the, <laughs> that, that it shouldn't be that earth shattering. But I think for most of us who have privilege, uh, there is that moment when we discover that and it does tend to be alarming to us for whatever reason. So I think that um, most people don't want to really acknowledge kind of the history of oppression that we've really participated in, um, that we're complicit in ways, and that that's not comfortable. That's not fun. Um, it's hard to dismantle that, to do the work, to acknowledge it, uh, to divest yourself from it. Um, so I think there is a lot of incentive not to acknowledge the pain of people of color um, because because of how invested we are in our whiteness. And really, we don't want to look at those things. Um, Adrian Pei, who, I used, who used to be Epic staff, well, is still on staff in a part, kind of a, an affiliate capacity. Um, but he, we worked together in Epic. He's writing a book about the minority experience in uh, white organizations, and it's called The Minority Experience. It's coming out soon. And he talks about the, the pain that people have experienced, um, that people of color have experienced, and why it's necessary to confront that, to acknowledge it, to face it, rather than just pretending it doesn't exist. Um, and also, you know, the power that we carry and the power differential that exists um, in majority white organizations when they're, yeah, just looking at those things and being... Um, willing to, to think about them and to be open, uh, that we, that we do have power and that we, that we carry those dynamics into everything. Um, I even forget this. I've been with Epic for 11 years and I'll have an exchange with someone and I'll walk away and realize, oh my goodness, I did, I was not aware of my power in that scenario and had I been, I maybe would have done that differently. So I think it's, it's definitely a learning process and something that we have to be committed to for a lifetime. And who wants to do that, Sam? <laughs> That's why I think there's so much, uh, I guess, resistance in, in, in yeah, majority culture people really facing these things and being willing to go there. So you've mentioned the words power and privilege a few times, and I want to circle back specifically. You said something about when you were at Rice in Houston, even though numbers-wise you were not a majority ethnically, you still had the power of being a majority culture student there. 
Can you think right. of specific examples of what that looked like? Oh man, that's a great question. I can definitely think of specific examples in my staff experience when I was probably slightly more aware of that. I think I've just accepted like that was true, that I still had power, that people, yeah, even though I can't think of an example, I know that to be true, that even in the close friendships that I had, um, yeah, that, that dynamic is still present, that I am a person who, who carries social power in these settings that I wasn't aware of, and I'm, I'm sure that was harmful um, to people. And I think, I think of my first team in Epic, and we were, so technically, this is back when it was called Ethnic Student Ministries, ESN. I, I kind of get lost in the language sometimes because we've gone through a couple of iterations, but it was an ESN team. Um, and I think there were maybe 11 of us, and all of us were doing Epic, except for a couple of people. Really, one woman was like full-time with Destino. And so I think about that because um, there were a couple of uh, white people on the team. And even though even though we, again, were in the numerical minority, we did carry power. And there were things, there were... Uh, different cultural clashes that we had, that we had to talk through. And that was one of the, the teams that I've really talked about these things the most. And it's probably because we had so much conflict <laughs> that, was, that came out of cultural differences. And so, you know, a couple of epic, this is actually how I started doing LD when it was called LD. Our, some epic LD people came in and mediated for us in our conflict and uh, that's when I was like, oh, I think I might want to do that someday. So, <laughs> and the people, uh, Margaret Yu and Brian Virtue, who came, actually also talked to me, you know, at some point they recruited me and that's how I got onto the Epic LD team. So I'm thankful for that conflict, I guess, because <laughs> that, yeah, changed my like career path. But also because, yeah, we... It was it was a te- it was a learning year for sure, and that's probably where I started to understand power more, uh, because of seeing it play out and also reading. I started reading more things about it, and um, so, yeah, people. I think white people when they go overseas, for example, they're not in the in the numeric majority, and so people come back thinking that they are very culturally competent. Um, and sometimes that could be true, but I think it's, there's a different, it is different to understand the experience of a minority in, in the United States versus like being someone who even somewhere else in the world, you still walk through that part of the world as a white person. And there are many countries where, yeah, that's still a powerful thing to be. Um, so yeah, that's what I would say. My husband and I recently went to represent crew at a large, well-known organization in America, and we went with a colleague who's a person of color, and we were invited into this setting where we knew that we were going to need to go up on stage and represent 
crew at one point. It was a small gathering, mm-hmm. but um, there were people speaking from the front, and we weren't really sure how who they were going to call up. Well, they ended up calling up my husband and I, and our coll- colleagues stayed and listened to our presentation. We went up, gave a little presentation about crew, came down, and I had been nervous, and so I went over to this colleague to debrief, sort of like, how did I do, you know, and and she looked at me and she said, well, it would have been nice to have been acknowledged. Mm-hmm. And I, and my heart just sunk and she helped mm-hmm. me kind of scan the room and help me see that the, the VPs and the execs who had been talking to my husband and I the whole time were white and all the people yeah. who were the, the lower level employees and the caterers and the bartender were all people of color. And it was this wow. moment in my life where I realized I had walked in and not noticed any of that. But my colleague mm-hmm. had walked in and seen it right away because it's the right. world that she lives in and right. what she experiences all the time. And of course, she has the intersectionality, I think you call it, of being a woman and a person of color. Right, totally. Mm -hmm. And she was so gracious with us. I mean, she wasn't angry. Mm. She was just trying to help us see, like, this is what it's like to be a white person with power. Right. Because you don't, you you swim in it. You don't even know that it's there until someone helps you see and so it's, it's yeah. moments like that that continue to happen in my life that I'm so grateful for because mm-hmm. I just would have no idea otherwise. Yeah, she was giving you a gift in that moment and even her vulnerability and kind of putting herself out there, which I'm sure she's done, you know, before uh, with maybe mixed results. It really is a gift when our friends tell us these things and... um. And, and that's why I think it's important, too, for, for white people in crew in other organizations to, to, to also be speaking out. I think we want to platform in that moment, you know, what did it look like to platform your colleague of color, like who was not the people in the room we're not looking like she was. <laughs> um, and so what does it look like to, yeah, to make sure that the people who represent us, um, yeah, that we're being different, that, that people have, people, everyone has a voice, but are we listening to those voices? Do we platform them? Um, yeah, I think that those are important questions. And I think that's, you know, it's challenging about being in a leadership position in Epic, um, a leadership position as the, the PNC director that I want to be occupied by an Asian American, I think we, I talk about that with my leadership team. I talk about that with the PNC team of how do I, how do we navigate this? You know, that the fact that I have some, some, um, I have my role, which comes with a certain amount of authority, um, that's natural to that role. And then I am in a, in an environment where, it's, it's an Asian American ministry. And so I want it to be an Asian American ministry. How do I 
defer? How do I um, kind of, how do I steward my power and steward the authority that I, that comes with my role uh, while still seeking to really um, submit to Asian American leadership? And I've, Sam, I've reflected about this. Like, I think that I, I realized I'm very fortunate, very blessed. It's such a gift to me. I've always had a boss who was not white. My whole crew experience, I've always been under the leadership of people of color. And I was thinking of how few people in crew could probably say that. It's, it's really amazing. Even people in Epic, I don't, I don't think we could always say that. You know, we have, um, yeah. So I have had, I have had white boss, bosses also, but alongside them, I've always had um, a, a boss who was a person of color. And I just, ha- that has shaped me in such profound ways. I think I've started to say to people that, you know, people of privilege can be saved, but we really have to be discipled into the kingdom. And what I mean by that is that when you grow up um, white, when you grow up with with a lot of privilege, the things that white Americans love are just not the things of the kingdom, generally. And the things that I love, the things that I naturally love, like meritocracy, that sounds great to me, but that's not the kingdom way. Um, This year, we, in Epic, uh, last year in Crew Inner City, they actually piloted a new MPD model, a communal MPD model, Um, which is different than every staff raising for themselves. And in Epic, we did it this year with our interns um, as well. So that means every person, it's, we call it the circle model. And I have to give credit to Sandy Hinkle and Trisha Daly, who um, helped come up with this model and really like make it work. So all of the interns like raise together some people come in with more MPD resources. This is what we're calling them. Some people come in with fewer MPD resources. But if you look around the room at a kickoff weekend or whatever they're going to name it next year, because I've heard the name is changing for the fourth time in four years. Uh, if you look around the kickoff weekend room, there's a belief there that God has the resources for every person in that room to report. However, they may not be equally distributed in terms of who has access to those resources, Um, but everyone comes to the table with resources. This is like the premise of the model. Everyone comes to the table with resources. Um, They may not be financial resources, but everyone comes. And how do we share them? Because if we share them, we believe it will be enough, Um, but it's about giving people access to to resources that they may not otherwise have access to. Um, and I, and I, thinking about that, you know, being discipled into the kingdom, the stories that I think about are how, how the Israelites gathered manna, and it talks about how some people gathered a lot, some people gathered too little, but in the end, everyone had the right amount, basically. And then... You know, Jesus tells the parable of the vineyard workers. And I just think reading those things with American, white American eyes, um, honestly, that that would be detestable to us. That's the kind of thing that we don't like. It doesn't seem fair. Why does this person still get 
you know, the full amount. If we look at that parable of the vineyard workers, why does this person get the full amount? They didn't do, they didn't do as much as the other people. And, and the, the, um, the, the vineyard owner's response to that is like, do you, do you fault my generosity, basically? Like, I have these resources. I'm, give, I'm choosing to give them. And so learning to love that, learning to love um, what the kingdom offers, which is not meritocracy, um, I think is a discipleship process and one that white America is failing at, to be honest. Um, but I'm grateful that people have been very patient with me and loving with me to, to help me to see those things. Um, so going back to the MPD model, I think that for our organization to change, we are going to have to do some different things with MPD. We are going to have to say, what does it look like um, to, to not limit the calling of God to people who have financial resources? Um, but how do, we, how do we believe that God has provided um, God has provided the resources for everyone who is called. It's just a matter of, of getting access to those things and being willing, some people being willing to share, really. So, um, yeah, I think about that. We're, there's, I'm grateful that there's a lot of work being done in that area, and I'm hopeful that we actually could do some different things moving forward. That's really exciting to me. And I've heard rumblings about communal support raising for years now about the need for it. Have you already been able to see its effectiveness at getting ethnic minority staff onto the field quicker? Well, this was our first year of doing it in Epic. And we we did it with a, a group of interns. And so... Um, one of the hopes of this particular circle model, I think there are other communal models out there, but the circle model, you know, the, because the, the contacts and the uh, partners are familiar with everyone in the circle. So what happens is, you know, I have an appointment with, with someone that I know, and through that appointment, that person becomes aware that I'm actually raising, I'm raising funds for us all. And uh, they, they get to know the other EPIC interns who, are, who will be on campus this year. And they feel connected, hopefully. That's the hope. Um, they get newsletters from different interns. And the hope is that they feel connected to this ministry. And so maybe if two or three out of five of the interns join staff, then, um, then they're pulling from, from that whole pot, you know, so to speak. Um, and being able to connect with people that they were connected with through the circle model that they wouldn't otherwise maybe have been connected to. And so I think we're really hopeful. I mean, we, they did report to campus, which <coughs> MPD is so interesting. I mean, particularly, I think, in an epic context, we're always a little bit behind. <laughs> so the, the milestones, uh, the benchmarks, you know, I don't put a lot of stock in them anymore, but yeah, all of our interns like made it on August 1st, which I don't know that that's happened ever, honestly, if I think about it. And so, um, yes, we have seen it be effective, but you know, Sam, it's actually, 
I'm talking about this, but I'm not the person who put it into practice. I'm not the person who, you know, has been in the ins and outs. And so really I want to, again, make sure that people know um, that fact and that there are people who are really committed, like Trisha Daly. Um, but the, I think the model is powerful, not just because of its financial outcomes, but because it's saying my flourishing is bound up in yours and we, we flourish together. Um, and the way that I flourish, even if it doesn't feel like that to me at the time, is by seeing you flourish. And so it's actually a, a spiritual formation kind of, it's a spiritually forming thing for these interns to go through. Some people came in probably with more, res- more MPD resources and who knows how they felt about the fact that they were going to share. I mean, someone knows, but <laughs> some of them may not have felt that great about it. Um, and so it really is a spiritual practice for them to be together, to be committed to one another on this level and to put that commitment into practice and saying, I'm willing to bind up my flourishing in yours and we'll succeed together or we won't. Um, I think that's deeply beautiful, very reflective of the kingdom and what God wants to see happen on earth um, and very uncommon and probably uncomfortable for people. Thanks for listening and be sure to join us next time for part two of TJ's interview where she'll explain why she reads all seven Harry Potter books every December and much more.